Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Yanta Kniff, and if you're not familiar with him, he owns Kniff Audio, which is a manufacturer of high-end mastering-grade equipment. They make EQs, compressors, uh, they even make microphones, synthesizers. They actually make a lot of equipment that might not be used specifically for mastering, but it is definitely made to a super high quality, all handmade stuff. And you might even be familiar with some of his products because there are a couple of plug-in alliance versions of his hardware units. There is his Soma, which is an amazing mastering EQ. And then there's also the Kinephonium, which is a really cool two-based synthesizer. In this chat, we have a really interesting conversation about the process of manufacturing gear and what that looks like and how to build gear that has a specific level of quality that stands above the rest. And really, the interesting part of this conversation to me is the debate of what makes a sound sound good. And as you'll hear in this interview, I think that that's something that as a manufacturer, Yanta has to deal with all the time is, you know, understanding when your equipment is done versus when you need to optimize it more. And, you know, what sounds good, what sounds better, that kind of thing. There's a lot of subjectivity to audio. And as a manufacturer, you know, you have to balance that subjectivity to decide what ultimately sounds really good for you and what you're happy with putting out. So yeah, in this conversation, we definitely talk about that and how he balances this in his own work. We also get into some really interesting conversations about what makes different models of equipment different. You know, obviously, when it comes to uh, your plugins or your hardware, whatever it is that you tend to use, you've probably got a lot of options out there for different EQs, different compressors, that kind of stuff. So what ultimately makes these things different? Because sometimes, I mean, once you learn how these controls operate, it sounds like they should all kind of function the same way. But the reality is, is that some people prefer certain pieces of gear versus others because they have a specific sound to them. So what makes these EQs different or what makes these different pieces of equipment different? And that's something we definitely cover in this interview here too as well. Now, I will say that this conversation definitely gets a little technical at some points here. I mean, after all, we are dealing with the person who understands all the electronics behind all of this stuff. But I will say that even if you aren't a really technical electronics-based person, I think it is really helpful to listen through this conversation to get a new appreciation for what actually goes into the equipment and why things sound different and how all of the little components that go into this equipment really add up to the sound that we're used to hearing. So, yeah, you know, if you're not technical and you don't necessarily know some of these words, not a problem, but pay attention to the things that keep popping up because those are important things that you should probably research a little bit more to just get more familiar with because ultimately in the end, when you're looking for new equipment to purchase and that kind of stuff, you want to be making decisions with an understanding of these components because ultimately they are the thing that differentiate the quality between different units out there. So that's enough of my rambling for now. Let's just jump right into this interview because I think it's a really fun conversation. I think it's really interesting and you're going to learn a lot from it. Yontay Kniff, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? I'm great today and uh, I'm very pleasure to be here. Awesome. I appreciate that. For people who might not know you, who aren't familiar with your background, both in music and in manufacturing and all the cool stuff that you're working on, can you give us that story? Yeah, well, I, I was always interested in audio and electronics, but I never really studied, like, uh, formally. I first tried to be a musician, and I studied in Helsinki, in the Sibelius Academy, for around six years, mostly Baroque music, but we also played with friends, all kinds of weird stuff. But then I had to give up with the music, because of too many physical problems, and then... The following year, I started uh, studies in in the Department of Music Technology, also in the same university. And uh, then I managed to actually graduate, and uh, for a while I didn't know what to do, but because I had already been building some crude compressor, mic preamp, yeah, something like that, and also 
loudspeakers. Then I kind of drifted and uh, started to build these things to friends first, and then I founded the, the company, and then it took many years to get really good. I mean, I was autodidact, self-taught, mostly. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So what what got you into the tech side of things? And like, was it just because you know you you appreciated the gear or something like that that made you interested in that, or were you always a bit of a techie kind of person? Yeah. The the last one, I think. Yeah. I was always I was always a bit nerd and techie and uh, making music, making musical instruments, always also a big part of my life. Designing acoustic instruments still doing it every now and then then also next summer we have a couple of projects with friends and uh, yeah recording but not so much recording mixing and producing that kind of things i i really didn't have time to probably get into that so but uh, sometimes i record some uh, classical music things for a few friends that's very cool it's interesting because, yeah, you were saying you didn't really get into like the recording side of it, but yet you make amazing gear for that purpose. So, you know, mm. I'd, love, I'd love to talk about that. Like, you know, obviously it's one thing to to build instruments, if especially if you're, you know, you have a, a background in performing music yourself, you know, um, you know, there's that practical side of being able to have that musicianship and play it. But like building equipment for a field that maybe, you know, you didn't have a lot of experience in. What was that? mentally was that a bit of a, a shift for you to to focus on that kind of stuff i think it just happened somehow i, I didn't really concentrate on any long-term plans it just happened really but i had uh, still have a great friend who who is a recording engineer mixing engineer and uh, also designs loudspeakers uh, who was interested in electrics at the same time, and uh, we we had uh, sessions. We studied together. We built prototypes together when we were around, uh, let's say, twenty six to thirty years old, or something like that. And he remained a mixing engineer, and uh, then I became a manufacturer, little by little. That's cool. I guess that makes sense. If you, if you have someone that you can bounce ideas off of, or you know they've they're like, oh, you know the tech side of things, and I'm looking for equipment that can do this purpose or that kind of thing. Like, yeah, and I'm only now, really, last few years, I've begun to understand something about how people use the stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and I can actually, I, I can actually even hear some of the things. Like uh, lately, we, we we were testing a new compressor model, which is gonna be mm, well. It's sort of half official already, but it's not on the website, and uh, we will have to wait a few months for the production. But anyway, uh, I tested it here, and I invited a couple of friends to test it also. Uh, for the first time, perhaps I really understood why it was good. It somehow the versatility. I could use very different time constants and ratios and whatever, and somehow I just couldn't make it sound broken. And this has been now confirmed by so many people after that, that I'm kind of happy that, well, I can hear something. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So when, when you first started building this stuff, then was it a matter of just maybe looking at other schematics for other pieces of gear and then, you know, basing things off of that as your foundation and then customizing from there? Yeah, to a certain extent, yes. I, But I didn't go through so many semantics as one might probably think. I had um, like one modern compressor schematic and um, one old EQ or maybe two old EQ semantics and... Uh, an opto like LA2A and and then I had some very interesting like inspiring old stuff to be repaired so like um, RCA compressor from the from the 50s which inspired me uh, 
especially in the way they built those times, like how to make gear easy to maintain, like bomb proof and that that sort of things, because they are mostly lost now, these old practices, or let's say kind of military type of practices to to build stuff. People are more cost conscious nowadays and not everything can be built to the same standards. For sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, I'm very fascinated with uh, the idea of people who manufacture gear that you know weren't doing it themselves, and you know how you how you learn that stuff, and how you how, obviously how you learn to build it, but then you mm. know how you learn to um, modify it so that it gets to that standard that it needs to be for the industry that it's being used in, right? Yeah. Um, and there's, the, I mean, there's plenty of examples of people in the same situation as you, right? Like, you know, I'm pretty sure Rupert Neve wasn't a he, he wasn't a recording engineer himself either, right? So, um, you know, another great example of someone there. Um, so that's very, very cool. So when you were learning the technical side of it, you did mention that you went to a technical school for it, but you were mainly self-taught. So how did you, like, what did you get from the, the schooling versus what you learned on your own? Like, were you just kind of on your own, just ripping gear apart and kind of seeing what happened? Well, from the... In music te- technology studies, I got just a general view in the studios and uh, many good friends who would then later help me to decide what kind of features to incorporate to the gear and so on. But my studies, I mean, how I studied electronics, I I read um, suspiciously little. Like I had Horowitz and Hill, the classic electronic um, what's the name of the book now? Ah, I somehow lost it. Anyway, it's it's like the the Bible for analog ele- electronics. So I bought it, of course, and uh, read it through. But uh, mainly, I started to play with uh, simulation. So I got a microcap electronic simulator, and I got some tube models into it. I started to design amps and uh, EQs, and I've learned th- these things, uh, let's say, a bit wrong. I mean, I didn't, I never learned, like, calculus, how to design some EQ circuits on paper with a, just a calculator and so on. It's been more like, let's put these things in the si- simulation and try to understand <laughs> what happens. <laughs> but one can get actually pretty deep in with that method also interesting i would say yeah that's very fascinating yeah I, I mean as someone who the only the only electronic background that i have myself is you know getting those like diy kits that you can buy and you know those are more like more or less just soldering by numbers you know but to actually understand how everything actually comes together and you know understanding you know how all the components in, influence each other and all that i think that that's uh whole other level of of interesting you know it makes you really connect with that gear and fully understand what what makes it different than other pieces you know the most difficult thing is how to understand what sounds good because these things are so subtle sometimes so unbelievably subtle what what will make like make or break the sound and we have too little understanding in psychoacoustics Oh, by the way, that is one of the things I really, really loved in my studies, the acoustics and psychoacoustic studies. That gave me a lot. For people who might not be familiar with like what you're talking about when you're talking about psychoacoustics, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, it's mainly about how we hear, how the ear works, how the neural network probably, crudely, works, and then how to research the topic, like what kind of tests have been done, what have been been found out, how is timbre and pitch and volume, I mean loudness related and these kind of things. How, what is the shortest sound you can hear apart from another and it's super fascinating. Gotcha. Because, yeah, I guess there's like a technical spec that would show you that we should be hearing things one way, but our ears react to the the music a different way sometimes right and is that that's kind of what we're talking about here yeah there there is 
there is very little research into this kind of very high-end hearing. I mean, the research which is available or was available for us that time, it was really, really basic. It was like, yeah, we we know that about 1% of second harmonic distortion sounds maybe a bit more warm and gives nice presence and blah, blah, blah. That's like the closest I got with uh, with designing <laughs> tube gear, <laughs> but it it it, get, it gave me understanding about the, how unbelievably complex hearing is, how things interact. Also, it uh, like I understood that okay, this this is just so such a small niche niche to really understand what goes into superb sound quality or certain kind of sound quality, that it, it will never be researched hmm. thoroughly. So there's all kinds of uh, riddles and uh, mysteries, and uh, it's somehow very frustrating because then it's impossible to really know sometimes where to go, what, what to what to believe, what to try to achieve in the design. But yeah, it's a complicated world and one one life is not enough. Really. <laughs> That's very fascinating, especially hearing it from a gear manufacturer because, yeah, I mean, you know, you out of everyone would, would have a better understanding of like these little components. And, and it, yeah, you're kind of constantly hearing like, you know, seeing the technical side of it and how the perfection should be done there versus what people are actually perceiving it to sound like and this and that. So it's interesting to hear that kind of perspective from it. Um, and I would imagine that just over the years of building gear, I mean, you've probably found that there's certain components that lead to, you know, quote unquote, like high quality uh, component or high quality sound and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, I, 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 there's an obvious reason why you're using certain pieces versus other ones and, you know, what makes your gear different than others, right? Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, some of those decisions are a bit more into the black magic than science. So I, I also try to find relevant information, I mean, credible reviews about some things from the high-end community, which is, of course, totally nuts. But... Uh, <laughs> But I mean, also, I've, I've been sometimes a bit disappointed um, in the professional community, because mainly because people listen with such a bad speakers, mainly, that they, they have no chance to hear some of the uh, finesses, delicacies, which are available for or those who are lucky to have better speakers or phones. It's a constant battle or, or a, almost a conflict. Mm-hmm. The high-end community, skeptical some, sometimes about the professional audio guys because they obviously use monitoring systems which are not capable of delivering all the resolution. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, then studio guys obviously notice very easily that uh, in the high-end community people don't care about gross colorations sometimes like really really bad design stuff and obvious snake oil and so on the list is long but it's like sometimes i i wish the pro audio community had more had a possibility to listen to more really good speakers because they don't even even quite old people don't sometimes know what they have missed because they always listen to brand x loudspeakers because they were the best they heard so so i don't know that's interesting it's it's a it's a really fascinating debate because yeah who who's right in this in this you know like 
you know, the majority of the the world listens to music on subpar speakers. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be aiming to make our music sound the highest quality. It absolutely can be. But but there's also that that struggle of like, well, how how far do we need to push ourselves and in, as far as equipment and you know, as far as all of that stuff to, to make music please this small niche group of people that, you know, yeah. s- dedicate their lives to high quality audio, right? That's, oh, that's correct. And I understand it also very well. But sometimes it's also about simply not knowing what is possible. Fair. That's true. It's like once you know that it's possible, then you have that, that need to like pursue it even further, I guess. Yeah, but uh, it's it's been... I've had many, many nice evenings here in my workshop. I, I have uh, treated this, this listening room kind of space quite well, and uh, I have a couple of pairs of very high quality speaker designs of my own. And uh, yeah, when studio engineers visit the place, quite seasoned one. One even even mastering engineers can be quite surprised about the resolution. Yeah, interesting. Well, one one thing I was curious to know was that I saw on like your company focuses on making high quality mastering grade equipment. You know, that's that's how I believe you advertise it on your website. How would you define the difference between gear that is made for mastering studios versus mixing studios? Or am I maybe inter- misinterpreting what what you mean by mastering grade? Yeah. Um. In my opinion. Repeatability is quite important. So, rotary switches mainly or exclusively instead of potentiometers. That's one of the basic things. And um, kind of tool-like attitude, not uh, aiming for very, very good ergonomics so that people don't have to concentrate on using the gear, but they, they can become one with it. On the sound, how should they sound? That's then more subjective and there are different needs. But I have decided to build fairly neutral stuff because uh, there seemed to be an obvious market gap for tube gear, which would be a bit more universal, less colored, more accurate. And uh, maybe that suits my mentality also better. I don't know. On the other hand, then I have uh, obviously built hugely colorful things like the Kniphonium synthesizer. So it's not that I wouldn't enjoy making tubes distort the hell out of it, but <laughs> but not in mastering equipment in that way. Yeah. No, that makes sense, and especially the uh, recallability. I think that is a really good distinguishing factor between a lot of mastering grade stuff versus mixing. Because yeah, you want to be able to quickly recall it and know you're exactly with the settings you had before, and not like slightly off. You know, because all that stuff does does make a difference, right? Every time you play it back, it's going to be slightly different if you've changed that gear up a little bit. So um, yeah, I think that's a really great differentiator. Um, yeah, because you know you see that you see those terms thrown around, you know, mastering grade or whatever, and some people will look at it and be like, is this just like a buzzword or is there actually like a, a practical reason why this is a uh, a mastering grade thing, right? Mm. And obviously, the gear that you use in mastering can certainly be used in mixing. It's just, you know, it's it, it works for both, right? Yeah, obviously. So yeah. It, does, it doesn't really make as big of a difference as a lot of people would think, but maybe mastering is typically going to involve a little bit more transparency and, and a little bit uh, less pushing of the equipment sometimes, right? Yeah. And uh, certainly maybe 30% or 20% of the gear we have made is in mixing studios. For sure. Obviously, there's a lot of great recording equipment out there, a lot of great mastering equipment out there. Um, and I'm curious to know, like, what made you decide to start building your own equipment then? Because once you get into the manufacturing side of things, I mean, there's a million different things you can make. So why get into specifically building some of your own audio equipment and, you know, making the models that you, that you did? That's a tough question. I, 
Whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, one part of, of uh, the equation is that uh, I was just super interested to try if I could uh, be successful. But then I also noticed that I have uh, quite different ideas about some things. And uh, I thought that I could have a, a twist of my own. And there is, like I said previously, there seemed to be a gap for um, high-quality tube gear, which is not too colorful, too coloring. And uh, I don't know, but I was probably, maybe, I was the first in, in the Pro Audio who started to use amorphous transformer, output transformer cores. That's, that's also something that uh, comes from the high-end community. I had a bit different ideas. And, uh, well, in the beginning, maybe the local community was just so responsive and nice that they ordered my stuff. But uh, then later, I sort of found out that actually I was able to create something that had global uh, possibilities. Yeah, it eventually caught on. People people heard what was possible with it. Yeah. I, I never marketed really properly. I was unsure about my skills for a very long time, so I, I didn't want to rush into international market. And so it happened very slowly. And then when it happened, after it happened, I kind of had enough work most of the time, and there was no need to try to increase the sales. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. And it's it's fascinating because, you know, I think... The way you're describing this, it sounds very similar to what a lot of uh, audio engineers feel like as far as like getting into, um, you know, opening up studios and stuff like that. It's like that imposter syndrome feeling of like, am I good enough at this? Is like, are my skills there? And sometimes it just takes a little bit of that validation of people actually being like, yes, this sounds great. And, and that's all you need to just continue to go. And then, you know, it keeps you pushing a little longer. And then eventually you just finesse your craft, your, uh, your craft a little bit and your skills get stronger. And, you know, it just it keeps improving the quality from that point forward, right? Yeah, and I'm I'm very happy now that I didn't push it because the first 10 or so tube compressors I made into Finnish market only and uh, around the first six or seven, they are so badly built that uh, if somebody sells or wants some repairs to be done, I I decided that I will offer kind of rebuild. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. We changed the circuit boards to thick factory-made proper ones, and uh, I tweaked the circuit to be more easily adjustable and um, less noisy. And but I I re- retained the original sound because. That was never an issue. People always liked it a lot. Hmm. That's very interesting. But it makes sense, right? It's like, yeah, I think, you know, as a mixing engineer myself, I look back at some of my first projects and it's like, how did I how did I charge people money for that? Like I, I had to give them their money back, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I actually even recently yeah, yeah. I, recently even myself, I like my very first band that I ever worked with, like however many years ago now, I think it was like twenty years ago, uh I, I recently was like, let's record that first song we ever did again. Like, no charge, let's just do it. I just want to hear how big of a difference it could be. And it's it's amazing how like, you know, years later your craft just gets better and you, you know, you can look back at it and laugh. But um but you mm-hmm. know, it all takes. It just takes that initial, um, that initial sale or that initial person who trusts you in the beginning to to get the snowball going, right? And to to keep you in business, essentially. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes looking back, it can be embarrassing because we know our own strengths now. But uh, you know, we have to look back at those as an experience that pushed us forward, right? Yeah, and uh, there was no other way. At least I th- I think so. But for me, there was no other way. Finland is not known for many hardware manufacturers. Just uh, this couple loudspeaker brands, obviously. But uh, but in the hardware department, not so much. It would have been 
vastly different situation if I lived in LA or Denmark or one of these really, really strong communities. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask about was in relation to um, just, you know, when you start building gear, obviously you kind of did mention that you would start to look at some specs of of other existing equipment that was out there. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, let's say, for example, when we're talking about EQ, like what makes one EQ sound different from another? Because to most people, they just learn, well, all you're doing is you're just boosting a certain frequency range by a certain amount of gain and maybe by a certain bandwidth. And all EQs should basically do that, right? So so what makes one different than another? I can give only a partial answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I know everything about that. But uh, there is, like, we can uh, split that question into two. Like, what does it do? And then what does it not do compared to some other? And uh, obviously, for example, Soma does create mainly third harmonic distortion in the bands because there are coils which are slightly nonlinear. So some distortion is uh, created and that is audible Probably, at least in the bass. And uh, what does it not do? Well, at least it doesn't create any crossover distortion, like in AB, plus AB operational amplifiers. All the distortion is just very, very nice, low um, harmonic content. So it's sometimes a bit... Difficult to say, why is the top end, for example, so nice? Why do people think? Why why is the middle so unoffensive and high end so smooth and blah, blah, blah? And then, then I, I have a hard time deciding whether the, some very typical IC-based EQ, why does it sound different in the top end? Is it bad or I I mean objectively bad is the small amount of crossover distortion that can be measured is that really making it sound bad and it's sometimes a bit hard to believe because the amounts are so low but I guess I have to kind of believe it because I haven't found other explanations and also this EXA EQ which is then very different from Soma. It tries to be totally neutral. It uses our own, my own design, uh, class A discrete OP amps everywhere. And uh, because it's class A, there's no crossover distortion. And also, in general, the distortion levels are super, super low. So I kind of cannot find any other reason why it sounds better than some more run-of-the-mill stuff. Interesting. And uh, sometimes sometimes I really wonder, like, why why then does it sound different from uh, um, good plugins? That's kind of the biggest mystery. Because plugins, plugin EQs are pretty much perfect. And certainly no distortion in them. So why? Where does it come, come from? Or even, is it real sometimes, I think? I, I wonder whether it really is real. But I guess at this point, when I've sold almost 100, I, I guess I have to start to believe that uh, people don't spend 8 or 9 grand just to have this <laughs> of course <laughs> box which sounds the same as the plugins yeah, but it's very very in- interesting i would love to know it but i guess but you kind of touch on it i think like i think it's those extra little bits of the harmonic distortion and that kind of stuff that that give the hardware some character that can separate it from like you said like the perfect plugin eq right like cuz yeah like i think 
there's all those different components inside of the devices. I mean, I'm saying this as someone who doesn't really understand the gear myself, but um, I'm guessing that it has to do with all of those different components inside that are kind of just accumulating and, and giving it its extra little thing. Like, you know, if it's an extra, extra distortion or whatever that is there subtly, but adds like an extra pleasing quality to the ear, I'm guessing. Would you, would you agree with that or am I way off there? That's part of the story, probably. <laughs> and then the other part, I just don't know what to say. I mean, seems to be more of a mystery. Because I try to, to be objective. I try to measure everything I can. And I have a friends who kind of think that I should be able to measure everything. And when I can't... They cause me to think that, okay, well, maybe this isn't such a big deal that I have the class A amps here because I could make the same um, measurable performance with the plug-in and so on. I don't know. This was this was not the best replies of all times, maybe, but... But it's interesting. It, it is interesting to understand, like, you know, I, it, it kind of sounds to me also like there's different ways that you can approach your design, right? Like you might want to have something that is like perfect, like that is perfection and it has no distortion and all that kind of stuff, or you might be fine with that. And I think you have to just kind of, it sounds like maybe you, you decide for yourself in the process that, okay, I'm going to let this amount of tolerance happen or that kind of thing. And then that maybe dictates what works for you and for your equipment versus uh, what doesn't make the cut, you know, Um, maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that always comes up because, like, I'll have a lot of people, a lot of my students will say, well, really, like, what makes this one EQ different from this one here? Like, aren't, aren't they the same? But I think but I think you're right, though. Like, it's those extra little, like, harmonic characters that, that come out. And, uh, you know, sometimes it is just, like, the way that the Q shape uh, changes as people boost the frequencies or that kind of thing, too, right? So um, that, can, that can have a play. Yeah, obviously, the user interface and uh, this kind of peculiarities of uh, simple topologies they they eventually might like uh, fool you thinking that it sounds different although it might sound the same if you actually had the same user interface as your plugin but okay even even if we think that some gear actually does sound the same exactly same as some plugin then the physical user interface is just so much better that uh, even that is actually pretty good reason to use hardware for many people still yeah and i guess there's also like there, i mean that tactile approach to using gear a lot of people do really appreciate that because they feel more connected to the moves that they're making and that kind of thing there is like a like almost like a psychoacoustic element there too, you know, of just like, you mm. know, I, I'm, I'm adjusting this knob yeah. so something is happening, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> we get fooled so easily. Yeah. It's interesting. Also. Well, so speaking of the Soma, you mentioned that. Um, I know that you advertise that it has what you call real cue adjustment. And I'm curious to know, what does that mean? And, and why is that important? The traditional passive EQs never had, uh, except for some custom units, they they never had U-value adjustment, which wouldn't affect the boost or cut amount at the same time. I mean, increase the Q and uh, you increase the amount of boost, for example, in, well, in all of them, like Pultec or or any of the copies and and many many modern designs. So so why does it matter? Well, you lose resolution. You cannot have a lot of uh, uh, like wide range of cues without uh, the am- boosting amount getting super hard to adjust, or you like losing losing the available boost at low cues. So if you check, for example, what Pultec does, you get something like, I don't know, 
can't remember exactly, but like 20 dBs of boost when the Q is high. And then when you reduce the Q to the minimum, yeah, then suddenly the maximum you have is like 5. This is now just a crude, crude memory about how it actually is. But uh, you can work around it and and many, many people are fine, but then if you really want to just change the queue and not the boost at all, then 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 it gets much more complicated suddenly. You have to have a huge amount of relays or switches. Well, actually relays because there has to be a logic kind of logic table how to choose certain inductance and capacitance to create the certain Q and frequency combination. It's no wonder that these kind of EQs were not widely available, because it is just so complicated to make. But uh, I thought that, well, this actually could be commercially valid approach, and it seems that it was. It's very cool. Yeah, I mean, that again, I, I guess that comes back to what you were talking about earlier, how you just had some different ideas of what the audio industry was missing. And uh, you found that that gap there that, you know, you were able to implement into your own equipment. And, mm. you know, that's that's one of the things that separates your gear from a lot of the other ones out there. So, uh, you know, like you said, I think you were the first one that did it, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, Interesting. I don't remember it anymore. Which brand was it? But I found once on the internet a picture of a EQ which was made only in a few units for one studio. And that was like maybe end of 70s even. Very late for a passive EQ anyway. Maybe early 70s anyway. Uh, and it, it did have a real Q value adjustment, at least for some of the bands. And without relays, it required ridiculously uh, complicated rotary switch system. But uh, someone was crazy enough to do it. <laughs> I wish I remembered the brand. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I love the idea that you can just look at a piece of equipment, dissect it, and then figure out a more streamlined approach to it or optimize it that's uh and that's that's a that's a skill right there that you know i wish i knew <laughs> amazing um another thing i would love to ask about is um is tubes and obviously you build a lot of gear that has tubes and i think when people think of tubes a lot of people tend to think of tubes as being something that creates a warm sound or they associate it with saturation especially obviously because like you know in the, in the world of guitar amps people think of tubes as like being the thing that gives you that nice crunchy sound and that kind of stuff but a lot of your gear tends to be really clean and so i'm curious to know like what what makes it so that your gear is so clean using these tubes or do people just have the wrong interpretation of what tubes should sound like well low distortion tube gear has always been around so it's not uh, that I would be doing something completely novel. But uh, to make low distortion tube gear, you got to have uh, quite beefy tubes. For example, the output tubes in my very mute compressor, which is now no longer made. And uh, some uh, they are pretty much the only option I can imagine from both new old stock and uh, currently made tubes, which has this super low uh, impedance and uh, very high current capability and are also super linear. And that's the Russian 6H30Pi. I came across that tube because I was following the high-end community and uh, there are a couple of manufacturers in the States, especially one of them who started to use them before anybody else knew about the tube in the West. And they had a Russian CEO or something who, who had contacts and uh, 
he began to import these tubes in the 80s. And then later they they became available through Electroharmonics and Softec. And it's really one of the one of a kind tube for linear output stages. Well then, of course you can always uh, linearize amplifiers with feedback. Just add stages, add feedback, and you get more linearity. But uh, there are some drawbacks. I this is one of those black magic things, perhaps, but I believe that uh, for the most beautiful tube output stage sound, you shouldn't use too much feedback. So that the tubes create the linearity. And uh, if you start to make the stage linear with feedback, the linearity will become very, very different in the bass and mids and highs so to get kind of mostly even spectrum you have to pay attention to many other things than just open loop gain and then add ton of feedback but uh, i have to also tell about the transformers because tube sound without transformers it's mm, it's like how do you define tube sound. For me, I tend to think that people usually mean gear which has transformers on the signal path, and that's very often much more important than the tubes. So transformers have a very complicated set of non-linearities and quirks. And uh, I've always used very high-quality ones, and uh, paid a lot of attention to headroom in the bass, which could be a problem in some designs, and also how high the treble extends. And uh, the Swedish Lundal makes very, very nice units. And after a while, I, I noticed that they offer this amorphous core instead of a silicon iron core, and I ordered some and I arranged a, a blind test. I switched transformers in Soma between these two types and also in Varimu and then I asked some of my customers to send me their favorite test tracks and then we we made a blind test. And um, it was pretty interesting because actually there was only one of the three customers who really obviously heard the difference and the descriptions, verbal descriptions about the differences mm. were logical. But the other two couldn't hear it. Uh, or at, when they were doing the test, they were not familiar with the test, all the test tracks and it was just a bit too difficult. Mm. So we are, not, we are not talking about day and night differences, obviously. But we are talking about something that nobody has ever tried to properly explain in, in distortion or some simple measurable values, but which is audible. But on the other hand, uh, the differences are very real. You can measure them, but it's not so easy to put them into, for example, distortion values. Because transformers can have, for example, very high amounts of distortion on very low levels. That's something people probably don't know. But the hysteresis in transformers causes, causes that. And uh, one of the features in, in this uh, very low loss amorphous score is that uh, these hysteresis losses are very low. And uh, this one customer was able to spot the amorphous model because it could deliver more uh, low-level information like space, I mean, like reverbs, reverbs and that kind of like low-level details. So that was one of the most important experiences in my early career. I, I understood that there is something. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because like it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier of like, you know, how 
how people listen to things and, you know, what really matters versus what doesn't and, and you know, what really makes the biggest difference. And, um, yeah, I, I can see how being a, a manufacturer, you're constantly fighting that battle of knowing what's the right way to go because everyone's going to have their own opinion of it. And that's that's very fascinating. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, and also cool to hear about the low-level distortion thing because I, I think you're right. A lot of people think that distortion only comes from high level as well. So um, mm. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I'd love to shift gears a little bit to the digital side of things now. Obviously, um, Plugin Alliance now has a version of the Soma plugin. And, uh, you know, for a lot of people, that might be their first introduction to your your brand's equipment. Um, so I know you might be a little biased because obviously it's your product. But I'm curious to know how you feel the plugin compares to the hardware and if there are any noticeable differences that you can quickly identify between them. Well, I cannot hear the differences, I have to say. But uh, that doesn't mean that many customers couldn't. I know quite a lot about the modeling because I got pretty active in uh, in checking the different versions and uh, I I was quite critical because I found that uh, okay this is unlike the Knifonium this Soma is kind of simple or let's say there are some things that are simple enough to be modeled with precision and I required them to do it right and they did but uh, it, it took some it took some time but uh, it was good that uh, good that they they put the effort to do it right and uh, but then from the very beginning I also knew Although I, I'm not the DSP specialist in any way, I understand some something about the, about the problems, and I knew that there are some things that they can never do, and nobody else can do. And I said said that from the start that I know. I sent them measurements and explained about some things happening there that uh, I think that I I don't require this to be perfect because it's just I don't know if it's impossible maybe in 10 years who knows but I I, I knew that it's not possible at the moment mm-hmm. whether it is important for the sound that I don't know but I know that from strictly objective standpoint it cannot be 100% accurate. But then it's certainly good enough uh, to represent the curves. The curves are perfect. The distortions from the bands are very, very, very close. And the output amplifier also is as close as it can be. And uh, it doesn't alias a lot. So it's very, very, very clean, very good processing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy about it. And many of my customers who have the hardware sometimes use the plugin also. That's very cool. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a sign that like, you know, for, for the majority of the regular users, you know, like if you're using it like a regular person would, you probably are going to get the same results as the hardware, more or less. It's just maybe when you're pushing it a little bit here or there, those kind of things, that maybe you get some differences that, that are super noticeable, I guess. Mm. Right? Yeah. The interaction between bands, uh, it's quite complicated. And they were able, from the very start, they were able to model the frequency response very well. But uh, how to model the distortion behavior, that would be like totally crazy to do it's that damn distortion man you keep you keep bringing it up and that's like the thing that just makes everything complicated right <laughs> <laughs> yeah because the distortion is not only it's it's not simply related to to the amount of uh, eqing you are doing but things start to go complicated when you have two bands close to each other 
and especially if one is boosting and one is cutting, then there will be distortion uh, also near 0 dB portion of the curves. Mm. And uh, I don't know how that could be done. I'm sure, you know, like, kind of like you alluded to, like maybe at the current moment, that kind of modeling in the plugin world just isn't there. But, um, you know, obviously technology technology <laughs> advances so quickly. So I, I'm, I'm curious to also get your take on that as well. Like, you know, do you think the plugins will catch up or even maybe surpass the quality of hardware at some point? I have been, let's say, pessimistic. So I've believed for 10 years that soon I will be left without work, but it doesn't seem to be happening. So people still use hardware. Five years ago, I, I couldn't believe that uh, the situation has changed so little after all. Hardware is still selling. And uh, I thought that the modelings would be already like pretty close to perfection, but I've learned to understand little by little how unbelievably complicated and processor intensive it is. Like for example, the Knifonium, obviously it's a complicated machine, but uh, uh, I had this weird, <laughs> weird comparison idea one day that with today's technology, would a really, really close modeling consume more electricity than the real thing. I mean, the real thing is tube technology. It's running re- very hot. It consumes like more than 100 watts of power to make simple synthesis. But I still think that uh, a very, very good digital model would consume more power, which is kind of <laughs> laughable. <laughs> but I think it that's the way at the moment. Interesting. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess... The biggest thing when it comes to the digital side of things is there's that recallability. There's like that that like yeah. instantaneous thing that comes with digital software, right? So I think that's why a lot of people gravitate yeah. towards it. But you're right. Like, I mean, obviously the physical side of things, when you have the physical hardware, you have the tactile element, you have what is currently the best quality sound, and you have all like the little nuances of the hardware that go into it. And, you know, the, those things, it's, it's funny that like all these plugins are trying to emulate the hardware, but but they're not quite getting there, right? Yeah, I I feel a bit weird about that. I understand the reasons, but more plugin companies should be more into designing something new. It's really boring, really boring to have the 10 different models, modelings of a, some classic, and they are all bad. <laughs> like, why? But then what happens in like, Look ahead, limiting. There's been such a great advances, like in the past five years. I didn't actually know how good they are before. I, a few years ago, a friend of mine wanted to show me how amazing they have been able to make them nowadays. I was kind of blown away. There, there is like real. Um, development and real research and uh, good spirit but then there is this let's model everything and they sometimes don't even try to model they just do the graphics and that's pretty much it of all there is so for sure yeah i guess it's like you know there's the uh people are sometimes afraid to jump into something new or to like to tackle a new project and new technology, that kind of thing. And uh, so from a marketing perspective, it's easier to maybe market, hey, you know this thing that you already love? Like, we just made a digital version of it. It's cheaper now. You can have a million of them instead of, you know, paying a lot of money for one, that kind of thing. Um, but but you're right. The technology is definitely allowing us these days to to expand upon what we've had before and, you know, create this new stuff. And, um, you know, I think that that's, it sounds like that's kind of the way you approach your gear. You know, you were talking about how you came into this having new, fresh ideas. And, and uh, you know, we, we were talking about the real cue adjustments and all that stuff. And it's just stuff that 
is ex- is expanding upon the technology that we already had, and it's it's giving people something new, and um, you know, it, it's just we're we're creating more tools to use and and to create higher quality audio. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting, really interesting time that we're in because we're going to start to see these these evolutions, especially now that people are starting to get tired of having yeah like fifty different emulations of you know, a Neve or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, we're starting mm. to get into like new, new, new advances and um, it, it'll shape the way music is heard, I think. So um, yeah, I think that that's probably a good spot to wrap this up. If people want to learn more about you or your company or even purchase some of your gear, what's the best way for them to do that? There's a contact form on our website, nifaudio.com. And uh, we have uh, been... We have mostly sold directly, and that's the way it's going to be, because that's the way to create more wa- more value to the customer. And uh, so we sell like 90% directly to customers nowadays. But we also can sell through some retailers every now and then. So if, if people are afraid to order directly, they can also ask pretty much a- any retailer to deal, but we we pre- prefer to sell directly for the value. And more about me. Well, I don't know if there is much <laughs> <laughs> much to learn. So I haven't like kept a blog, or I don't have a podcast, or anything like that. But I try to write very like generally interesting stuff on my Facebook page, Kniforia Facebook page, compared to like the general way of marketing through Facebook. Um, I think there is actually something worth worth to check every now and then. Because I'm I'm not only trying to sell something, I'm also genuinely very interested in some technical things and I want to share my experience or observations. Love that. Yeah, I was even noticing on your Instagram page, you get into a lot of the stuff uh, in there too, and you're sharing ideas of stuff you're working on. And it's uh, it's definitely fascinating mm-hmm. to, to follow your journey there. So um, yeah, definitely people should check those out. Well, well, Yanta, thank you so much for for doing this. I really appreciate it. I think it was really interesting to hear your perspective on a lot of this stuff and um, you know, give people a sense of, why this gear is different, why it's important, what people should be listening for. And um, yeah, I love the work that you're doing. So keep up the great work. Thanks. It was great. So that was my conversation with Yanta Kniff. And that was a really interesting conversation to me. And I think it brought up some topics that I just never even considered when it came to manufacturing. And, you know, that balance of really trying to determine what sounds good, that's a really tough question to answer. And I can see how, as a manufacturer, when you're testing out different components against each other um, or making different schematics and that kind of stuff, you know, really understanding what ultimately sounds the best is such a subjective thing. So, yeah, I, I can't imagine what it's like to go through that process, but I really appreciate how transparent he was throughout this whole conversation about the battles that he goes through with with this stuff and how he balances that. And I also thought it was interesting that he talked about how he isn't a mastering engineer. He's certainly learning that process, but he was not, that wasn't his background. So it definitely brings a different perspective to building equipment. And, you know, there's always that battle of pleasing the pro audio community versus the audiophile community and also just learning how both sides of the spectrum work and you know building equipment that really satisfies a need for both. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a pleasure to chat, chat with him and to hear his perspectives and to get his transparency. I really enjoyed that. And I hope that you enjoyed that as well. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking for tips on how to create pro sounding recordings from your home studio. If you're not sure how to use the equipment or you're not sure what process you should take, what steps you should take, what you should be listening for, all of that kind of stuff, on that website, I've got a ton of great resources designed to help make the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music easy. And one resource that I definitely want to point you to is my book called The Mixing Mindset. 
And inside of that book, I break down the entire process of mixing step by step so that you know exactly what to do, what order to follow, and just to take out all of the guesswork throughout the whole process so that you can have fun doing it and you can make better sounding music and ultimately feel proud of the music that you're making as well. So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that's it, guys. We've reached the end of this episode, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.